Is this the cold open portion of the of the podcast? You know, I feel like I spent the entire drive home from Whitewater on the phone with people talking about the strange thing that the committee did on Saturday. And I kind of just want to jump right into it. Want to do that? Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Matt Coleman and Greg Thomas. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, the weekly podcast about the largest division of college football. We welcome you to podcast number 297, which is otherwise known as season 15, episode 21. It's the podcast for December 6th of 2021. I'm Pat Coleman, the executive editor of D3Football.com. I'm Greg Thomas. I am the Around the Nation columnist. And Pat, we made it. Quarterfinals are over. We're down to the final four. Maybe a little bit of controversy out there as well that we'll talk about in just a moment. I was going to say it's like almost only controversy, right? I feel like I drove home from Whitewater on Sunday and there was almost nothing but that my entire drive home. I could go back and look through my call history. Uh, you know, uh, the, the various people that we talked to, people who called me asking, how the heck did this happen? Me calling people saying, how the heck did this happen? And, you know, current committee members, former committee members, uh, more than one of each of, of uh, you know, people with each of that status. And what we're talking about is, yeah, there were four games on Saturday, one really exciting game, three games that were a little bit out of hand. What seemed more out of hand was the committee announcing on Saturday night that they were sending North Central to Mount Union, a thing that 10 years ago, the football committee wrote a whole rule to avoid. Yes, they did. People may remember all the way back in 2010, I believe it was. University of Wisconsin-Whitewater was the defending national champion. They were the undefeated 2010 champions of the WIAC, and they wound up playing a quarterfinal game in Naperville at North Central. And at the time, everybody sort of in the Division Three community was like, hey, now, that, that seems weird. The defending national champion should probably play at home. They've earned sort of home field advantage to the playoffs. And the NCAA football committee said, you know what? You're right. And they created a rule that was meant to sort of protect national champions who were undefeated the following season. And that rule has sort of held up for an entire decade until today. Yeah, we take this committee, Greg, that went from, I think, underthinking some of the hosting uh, decisions for matchups in the first round. We talked about, right, we talked about Endicott being allowed to host RPI, even though RPI had clearly the better criteria head-to-head. We talked about UW Lacrosse having to go to Albion, uh, even though Lacrosse had the better head-to-head uh, application of the criteria. I guess maybe they took that to heart because then they went and they overthought this completely uh, in, in talking to people. First of all, I want to start by talking about when we talked with former committee members who said that there were, um, you know, something like this would never happen in, you know, so-and-so's four years on the committee or so-and-so's six years on the committee. One of those people who's been a national chair in the course of that past decade where that rule went into place. There's some unquotable words being used, being thrown about, about how uh, hmm, ill thought out this is. I'm, I'm putting my words onto that, right? But that in the past, you would never take 
you wouldn't consider taking a undefeated national champ and putting them on the road in the semifinals for so many reasons. And I, I feel almost like between uh, the phone and the Twitter and the email, I'm a little bit talked out about this, but I'm going to get, I'm going to, we're going to continue. At least I'm going to continue to be ranty, Greg. I don't know how, um, you know, you're going to take this, but it just coming from the former committee perspective. Uh, first off, I was uh, a little bit surprised at how forthcoming some of those people were willing to be about, you know, some of whom are people that they worked with and, and that sort of thing who are on the current committee about this decision and just not understanding the things that are in the exact same criteria that were there when these other people were on the committee. Yeah. And we're, you know, we're, we're talking about the the extra rule that we're talking about is that when teams are tied, undefeated teams are tied, the uh, previous tournaments results can be used to break ties and seed teams that way. And that provision exists explicitly to reward teams that went farther than other teams in the previous year's championship tournament. And, you know, We've always, we've been asked many times, many ways in many forums over the years, why does Mount Union always get to play at home? How come they never have to play on the road in the playoffs? Doesn't that seem unfair? And the answer is they get to play at home because they beat everybody all of the time. They advance to the semifinals and the championship and they win national championships over and over. They earned that right. And 10 years ago, that that rule sort of made it sort of codified the idea that if you want to play home games in the quarterfinals and semifinals round of the tournament, particularly when you pair up with a team like Mount Union or Whitewater, you need to have performed better than that team in the previous tournament. And North Central did that thing. They did it. They did the thing that we've said Mount Union does to everybody else all the time, and they have earned that right to host a semifinal game and then they didn't. And I'm, I'm at a loss to try and explain in any other way how we got to this point where Mount Union is hosting a semifinal in a year where based on everything we've known for many, many years, doesn't seem to be applying. So now I'm going to spin forward to talking with some of the current committee members. And I am going to say just here off the top, um, just because of the way the weekend schedule worked for us, it wasn't going to be feasible to try to get someone on the record. So I did not pursue getting someone on the record. And I apologize. I mean, that is, you know, that is on us. Um, I probably could have, frankly, turned off the highway at uh, exit 41 on I-94 in Wisconsin and driven over to UW-Stout if uh, Dewey Nats, who is the uh, athletic director there and is the chair of the National Committee, would have been available for an interview, but um, did talk to two current committee members, one of whom said, yeah, we basically took it straight down to what was in the criteria and what was in the criteria only. I reminded this person that, you know, this tiebreaker criteria was there in the rules specifically to guard against having to make this uh, decision in this situation. And that person said, yep. And that was it. You know, no explanation of why it wasn't used, an acknowledgement that it wasn't used. I mentioned to this person that, uh, you know, the optics of it from the outside, and we've seen people on Twitter say this. So it's not just me uh, saying this, and it's not just me putting, I'm not putting words in Greg's mouth either by saying this, is that, you know, the committee could be protecting Mount Union 
and trying to get them to a virtual home game in Canton in the Stag Bowl in order to make the Stag Bowl look good, in order to make the Stag Bowl gate look good, and that sort of thing. And that person said, yes, that did occur to them. Okay, second person said, and I made better notes because I was in the passenger seat for this one, that it was like a much longer conversation than they thought it was going to take. The majority of the discussion is kind of looking through the criteria. They looked through the primary criteria. That's what you should do, right? They added in the results of the postseason games, which is unusual. And in checking with other past committee members, said that was something that they had never done. And this is from a group that I think spanned about uh, six to eight years on the panel that it had not been done in that time. So when you add the postseason games in and using updated numbers is absolutely not proper. And I have been told that this might be officially brought up to the Division Three Championships Committee, which is above the football committee, as soon as Monday, the day this podcast drops. Here's an interesting thing you may remember. North Central didn't play a first-round game. Now, is it a big deal that North Central's record is 12-0 and Mountain Union's record is 13-0? No, in the real Division Three football world, I don't know that we have been participating in a real Division Three football world under those parameters over the course of this season. Things that have been done over the past decade that have made sense, that have become precedent, that have become understood, no longer seem to apply, and that's one of them. That also changes a strength of schedule calculator for no real good reason. I mean, North Central would get a boost from having played Carnegie Mellon in the uh, in the first round. They would have gotten a boost to their strength of schedule. In the end, even before or after you add in the results of the postseason games, which again, as I said, is basically an unprecedented move, or at least not in the past decade or so. Even then, the margin of strength of schedule that points towards Mountain Union is pretty razor thin. The way that the criteria are listed in the handbook says that when all criteria are equal among teams with undefeated records in the primary criteria, the NCAA Division III football committee can use a team's performance in the previous championship season as a criterion. I understand that, you know, you're not going to likely get a strength of schedule that is all the way down to decimal points even uh, or equal, but generally this has been considered, you know, a minuscule difference in strength of schedule is not really enough to swing something in one direction or the other. I've been talking for a long time, Greg, um, that this is pretty frustrating to me. Oh, I'm sorry. And uh, this committee member also said, you know, when I pointed to the fact that this, uh, that this uh, criterion still exists, and I mentioned previous championship season, this person said, well, that's definitely getting into the semantics. And I said, this is not semantics. I am reading exactly from your pre-championship manual. This is what the, the selection criteria actually says. Yeah, I'm, I'm particularly interested now in the idea that we are reevaluating teams and seeds and hosts as the tournament goes along. I This is the first time that I've heard that that is a dynamic situation that changes from week to week throughout the playoffs. And I really think that if we are recalculating strengths of schedule and recalculating ranked opponents um, during the playoffs, don't we need to get data sheets on that? I think we need to be transparent about how we're calculating new rankings and seeds from week to week. If in fact, that's what we're doing. And, you know, we've, we've read through pre-championship manuals for decades, a number of years, and I'm going to have to really go back at this one and look and see, but I don't, 
I don't recall that process being codified. I didn't, I wasn't aware that results after the end of the regular season played a factor in tournament site selection. This from a former committee member, um, and I'm paraphrasing that in this person's experience, the committee always knew at the start of the bracketing process who the top four teams were, who was going to face whom once you got to the national semifinals. And Greg, you know, even though in about maybe 2009 or so, something somewhere around there, the committee stopped uh, releasing seeds. They tried to say that there never had been any seeds until I was able to provide the receipts on those conversations. And then even after that for a few years, they would still say, well, you know, X is the number one overall seed. And, you know, if, if an equal team, if the top seed from this bracket and the top seed from that bracket advance to the national semifinals, then this bracket is the one that's going to host. And this has been known and this has been discussed to have this all of a sudden be the new rule of the road. I think, frankly, it puts a lot more burden on the committee. It puts more power on the committee that they probably don't need or want. I mean, this, you made the decision back at the beginning of the playoffs. What would, would something have changed during the playoffs to change how your bracket seeds? I am. Uh, this is very close to reseeding the playoffs. And then are we just going to go straight to rebracketing the playoffs? Is that what's next? Because usually those two things are something that are talked about hand in hand. I know. And in division three, maybe you rebracket the playoffs to avoid plane flights when you don't need to have them. I would be curious to know, Pat, and I don't know if any of the uh, folks that you talked to today confirm this or not, but when this, when the bracket was released on selection Sunday was North central seated ahead of Mount union. And did that change? Maybe Mount union was always seated ahead of North central and we just assumed otherwise. Not that that's right either, but... Right, yeah. I don't have that answer. The only thing I have ever heard people say was uh, to talk about St. John's as being the number one overall seed, which again points to not paying attention to the criteria among teams with undefeated records. I, I also know that as a result of some of the discussions I've had with people today, there was some doubt as to whether using 2019 as the previous championship season is proper this year. But again... It specifically says in the previous championship season. It doesn't say in the previous season and it doesn't, you know, it, it provides that qualification for, in this case, 2020 not existing. It does. And if, if the intent was to wash this year's tournament of 2019, because 2019 is, is too far removed, that's language that you can pull out of the handbook before you publish it. That would, yeah. I mean, that would definitely involve really good editing of the handbook. I was going to say, are you saying that there is a history of, uh, of oversight, editorial oversight in the handbook over, over the years? Do you mean oversight or do you mean oversight? Exactly. We need a, a definition 101 drop right here, but, uh, we're, uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to move on from which is what is definitely a semantics conversation there. We will be talking about all four of these quarterfinal games. We will take a look at the two upcoming national semifinals. And oh, those are North Central at Mount Union and Mary Harden Baylor at UW-Whitewater. Mary Harden Baylor and UW-Whitewater. Also a thing happening this upcoming weekend. We haven't talked about it yet. Although I think Mary Harden Baylor fans think that decision is also controversial, that that game is at Whitewater. That is based primarily on the fact that uh, 
Mary Harden Baylor is number two in the D3Football.com top 25, and UW-Whitewater is number three. But our top 25 poll and any national top 25 poll has never been part of this process. Greg, before we move on to anything else and leave this entirely, I just want to, um, you know, congratulate you as one of the other 24 voters in the top 25 on a great job this season because the final four are also the top four in our poll. Feeling really good, really good about that. Not just the top four in our poll, Pat, but the top four in our preseason poll and every single week throughout the season, the, 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 the D3 top 25 poll knew where this was headed, apparently. And we have a one versus four, two versus three matchup. We actually got the, you know, the, the semifinal pairings correct seed-wise. Site-wise, maybe not so much, but again, we're not consulted. Our ability to rant, our ability to write stories about the Division Three football teams that will allow us to do so is really sponsored by our supporters, especially our supporters who do so through the Patreon platform. Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, is a platform that people can use to donate a small amount of money or a less small amount of money to an organization, often to content producers such as D3Sports.com on a monthly basis on an ongoing basis it has allowed us to do more things in the division three football world and it's going to allow us to do more things in the division three basketball world and uh, it's going to allow us to you know maybe just do in some cases maybe some of the normal things in canton ohio that we weren't sure we would be able to do like get greg there keith mcmillan is going to come back and do color for the for the stag bowl now he'll be doing color in the stag bowl for the umpteenth consecutive year since 1999 happy about all those things but very happy about the support we get from the people who support us on Patreon. Absolutely. We're going to have so much uh, coverage over the next uh, 11 to 12 days leading up to the Stag Bowl in Canton, Ohio. We've had a ton of really great Road to Canton stuff already over the last two or three weeks. Great stuff all throughout the season, all made possible by our Patreon subscribers. Our Patreon subscribers uh, also help support all the D3Sports.com family, including our friends over at D3Hoops.com, Dave McHugh, Gordon Mann, Ryan Scott, doing great stuff over there as basketball season starts to roll into holiday tournament time and then January when conference play heats up and Division Three basketball season really takes off. You, uh, if you dropped out of the tournament this past week, but you have a really good basketball program, go on over to d3hoops.com. Everybody who plays Division Three football, except for Mass Maritime, also plays Division Three basketball. So go check that out at d3hoops.com and become a supporter at patreon.com slash d3sports. Or if you want to make a one-time donation, you can go to d3sports.com slash help. Do the Penn States have their own region? Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. It's time for game balls, and my game ball goes to Alex Pete. Alex Pete, the senior running back for UW Whitewater. And at the half, that game between the Warhawks and Central was close. It was still in doubt. But in the second half, Central hardly had the ball. And part of that was because of the dominance of Pete and the Warhawk ground game. Pete had 20 carries for 139 yards and three touchdowns. In the second half alone, as Whitewater outscored 24-0 after the break in a 51-21 win. He finished on the afternoon with uh, 32 carries for 181 yards. Here's Kevin Bullis, who's going to talk just a little bit about the transformation in Alex Pete 
from Stag Bowl 2019 until today. You know, and I think the thing that Alex is, um, yeah, he's obviously had a heck of a career for us, Pat. He has. He's had a fantastic career. I think the thing that is really, he's taken to another level, and he took this as a thing after the 2019 season, is I got to be able to run away from people better. I, I got to, uh, you know, he'd have a lot of 25 yard runs, 32 yard runs, and he's like, no, I got to be able to break those big ones. My game ball goes to Mary Harden Baylor quarterback Kyle King. After a tough first round game against Trinity and watching his backup Ryan Redding post stellar numbers in the crew's round two win against Birmingham Southern, King returned to the starting lineup and pretty emphatically ended any lingering quarterback controversy conversations that may have been going on. King completed 24 of 32 passes for 345 yards and a UMHB single game record six touchdown passes in the crew's 49-24 quarterfinal victory over Linfield. For his record-setting performance and single-handedly turning Saturday's headlining game into a runaway, Kyle King gets my game ball. And if you wanted to see that coming, you could have maybe read a previous Road to the Stag Bowl feature about how difficult it is to run on Linfield and then paired it with a uh, Riley Zayas feature that ran as a Road to Canton feature this past week about the we don't have a quarterback controversy, we just have two really big quarterbacks at Mary Harden Baylor. Now in the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, we're joined by Frank Rossi. You may remember Frank as sideline guy from our Stag Bowl broadcasts, and we will be having a Stag Bowl broadcast on audio for the 21st consecutive season spread over 22 years because, of course, there wasn't one in 2020. We're uh, looking forward to doing that, but... Frank was our guy on the spot, on the sidelines, really, at the Mount Union game against Muhlenberg on Saturday. Frank, uh, first off, thanks for joining us. Secondly, I, before we talk about the game itself, your thoughts on like the atmosphere and that sort of thing in Alliance, Ohio these days? Uh, not as many people as I would have uh, hoped for uh, in the game uh, yesterday. And, you know, part of that is Muhlenberg didn't travel with too many people. Uh, there was a good fan base overall, but it didn't fill their whole side. And uh, I think the weather, the colder the weather gets, the less apt people are to spend a day outside for football. But still, you know what? Alliance is Alliance. The atmosphere is nice. The surrounding area has built up quite a bit since I was there 10 years ago, give or take. So uh, it's, it was good to get back there for a day uh, and some great football. Frank, let's pretend that this was a post-game news conference, for example, from this game in Alliance, Ohio. And give us your opening statement about uh, the game from Saturday. Uh, Muhlenberg has definitely improved uh, compared to what I remember in their last game of 2019 because I attended that North Central game at Muhlenberg, the uh, semifinal game that year. Um, Mount Union has some work to do to become the Mount Union of old that we remember from my first years as sideline guy uh, back when, what was that, like 2007, 2008, 2000, you know, all those uh, years and yeah, Whitewater was challenging them well back then, but you know, th they were the behemoths on uh, one side of the bracket always. And I just didn't get that same feeling from them in the game that I attended on Saturday. You know, uh, Muhlenberg goes out to a 21 to nine lead about midway through the third quarter. And, you know, then Mount Union answers with three consecutive touchdowns. They take the lead. Got to be honest with you, Frank. I know if I'm watching from home or in this case, watching from the press box in Whitewater, 
that is usually the time where you see the opposing team roll over. It doesn't happen. They don't come back. They don't rally from that. And that's not what happened on Saturday either. Well, special teams errors all day seem to really cause issues for them. The extra point that they missed to start the game was uh, one big one. Punt returns all day long seemed to be uh, problems for them. Uh, either they didn't have a punt returner in the right spot or you saw the muff occur and they survived the muff uh, situation in the third quarter. Uh, but the uh, big one was the punter taking a knee, uh, trying to get the ball scooped up. And uh, from my angle, it looks like it was the correct call that as he got possession, the knee was still on the ground and gave the ball over to Muhlenberg around with, at the 25-yard line, I think it was. And uh, they were able to score the touchdown uh, that – Michael uh, Feaster touchdown pass uh, that, uh, you know, he threaded a needle, did Michael Nikowski to get it to him there. And then they uh, kind of throw right across his body in the two-point conversion. 120 left, 29-29. But then I think somebody asked a question uh, in a Slack channel or something like that. Uh, did they score too early uh, or too fast? And, you know, there goes my unit on the other uh, end, and they miss a field goal. And the wind was a little bit of a problem. And the, the way the wind was blowing is the way they missed the field goal. So we went to overtime, and it was just a very weird and emotional uh, set of, like, you know, in real time, about 10 minutes in real time that occurred in the on that field. And, you know, Pat, you and I have been around enough football games where you kind of get brought into the emotion of it all. And it was almost like I felt – this emotion with them out there it was just back and forth and all around and it's it was a strange feeling and a great atmosphere a great game that's why i put it up there as one of the best i've ever attended what did you get a sense of uh, the feeling from muhlenberg there at the end of the third quarter the beginning of the fourth quarter when mount union rallied and took the lead muhlenberg had chances there right they were up 21 to 9 they intercepted plunk mount union's defense holds three and out then Petroselli scores one play later, 53-yard run. Three and out again for Muhlenberg. The momentum is now clearly behind Mount Union. This is where they fumble the punt. The Mules have the ball on the 22-yard line. They throw four incomplete passes from the 22-yard line on Mount Union. Zero points off of that turnover, 21 seconds used of game clock. Then Mount Union takes over. They go down and score again, and now they're up 22-21. to 21. There was more time left in the game, but... To me, it really felt like that's the that's the area where Mount Union gave Muhlenberg an opportunity to stretch that thing out and maybe maybe close it, and Muhlenberg didn't quite do it. Credit to Mount Union's defense there for forcing those three and outs and the turnover on downs as well. But did you get it? Was was there a deflating moment there for Muhlenberg in that in that sequence? Deflating. In a temporary sense, yes, but the one thing that really impressed me, and I was mainly on Muhlenberg's sideline because of the way the shadows uh, exist on uh, the other side of the field and, you know, the Havoc Reek Sun video, so I, it was just better for video purposes to be on the Muhlenberg side, and I got to be kind of, you know, within footsteps of Nate Milne and sometimes Michael Nikowski on the sideline because of it, and they were deflated, but they also didn't seem devastated by it. Nikowski, and I, I've said this to a couple of people today uh, on Sunday when we're recording this, uh, that compared to what I remember of him in 2019, the two games I've attended Muhlenberg this year, his leadership and maturity have gone through the roof comparatively. He's always had a great arm. But yesterday, or on Saturday, his his demeanor was really 
of maturity and leadership. And Milne was calm. He was a calming force. He was not getting mad at his guys. Obviously, he wasn't thrilled with the turn of events, but he was planning on the sideline. He was talking to the guys upstairs. It's about timeouts left and how to make sure that they had the ability to get back in the game. Because remember, it's an eight-point game, so still one possession. And yeah, it's touchdown and two against a team like Mount Union. It's never easy. But they just weren't completely devastated by it, Greg. And that was really impressive to see because we've seen it happen so many times when teams just get run over by Mount Union and that's it. It's done. Bye-bye. And no, that's not what happened to them. Yeah, I thought, you know, I thought Michael Natkowski was great in this game. You know, he completed a lot of passes, a lot of like Muhlenberg had a lot of drops in this game. Natkowski was really accurate putting the ball on the money over and over and over again. They found a lot of success early in the game with rolling Natkowski out of the pocket, not excessively, but just enough to get him away from uh, Mount Union pass rush and give him just enough time to find somebody open. He had zero turnovers today, really did everything he could have done to, to give Muhlenberg a chance to win. Yeah, look, there's no secret that Muhlenberg's run game is not going to be their strength. And so when you get one-dimensional, you know, stopping a defense from taking that away from you is tough, especially when it's a Mount Union defense. So you got to give credit to the offensive line of Muhlenberg, which has a lot of youth on it and immaturity, uh, you know, from the early part of the season when they lost their sinus to, to get to the point where, you know, they are now in a season, half a season, give or take, they, they gave them the time to be what Michael Nikowski is out there. And so you got to really think about just how one dimensional they were in the game. I mean, and look at the yardage totals of the game. It's it's amazing to me. 581 to uh, 299 in favor of Mount Union. It's, it's kind of a crazy game flow when you think about it. But Nikowski did what he needed to do, and the line gave him the time to do it in a game that, you know, the time possession, honestly, was in Mount Union's favor, too. So if you looked at the stats, you would think Mount Union rolled over Muhlenberg. They didn't. And ball control, Nikowski not making mistakes, as you pointed out, it was huge there. And defensively, they were able to take away the long pass plays, mainly from Mount Union, which not many teams can do. Frank, last question, and then we'll let you go. Uh, first time to really see up close the sideline and like the demeanor of the Mount Union football team under Coach Dart. Obviously, you'd spent a lot of time on sidelines under Vince and Larry Karras as uh, the Stag Bowl sideline guy. What's your take on, uh, you know, any differences, anything of note that we should think about? Well, remember, I did get to the uh, Westminster game uh, when uh, they uh, faced them uh, early in the season, too. And I, I think they're more comfortable uh, with Dart at this point. Now, they had a spring with them, too, but it just seemed like they too weren't in a panic mode uh, and that they trusted the process at that point in time. The, the biggest thing to think about in the game is that they abandoned the run very early in this game. And then when they finally went back to the run with Petrocelli getting that, what, 53 yard touchdown run, it was a key moment because that was the first time really the run worked to the degree they needed it to work. And that's how they began to get their momentum back with the run. And it'll be interesting, interesting to see, you know, when it gets to North Central, if they're able to get the same success on the ground to open up the pass game better than they were able to on Saturday against Muhlenberg. But they trusted the process. Dart seemed to be in control of his team at all times. And there was, there was no panic on that sideline that I could sense, even down 21 to 9. 
Petroselli with 207 rushing yards and four rushing touchdowns over the past two weeks for Mount Union. Frank, appreciate your time, and we'll uh, chat with you down the road. Thank you, guys. See you on the sidelines soon. We spent a good amount of time talking about that game because it was a big game. Obviously, all four games are big games, but it was a close game, and it was a close game late going all the way to overtime. Greg, these other three playoff games you know, on Saturday, maybe not as close. For example, let's just uh, briefly touch on North Central and how they... I had thought, frankly, that, and I did this in my prediction, that uh, the North Central RPI game might be somewhat akin to the North Central Delaware Valley game from 2019. It really was not so. It was not. And, you know, I think that the the path to victory for RPI was going to be the same way that they've won games throughout uh, the playoffs, particularly looking at last week against Cortland. They wanted to possess the ball, shorten the game, and try to match North Central over the course of like eight or nine possessions. Instead, North Central ended up with 13 possessions in the game. They had two possessions on offense before RPI even had one. And RPI's offense didn't get on the field until almost eight and a half minutes were gone. So controlling the clock, shortening the game, all of that was blown up before RPI even took an offensive snap. Full dominance all the way around in this game for North Central. They doubled up on time of possession, about 40 minutes to 20 minutes. They limited RPI to negative rushing yards in the game. They allowed RPI just 35 net yards in the second half. They even blocked RPI's lone PAT. It was absolutely disrespectful. What they've done this year is they've dominated. North Central has dominated everybody that they've played this year. And on Saturday, they were, you know, dominant again and virtually flawless. You know, talked about uh, the fact that it would have to be a ball control game, right, in order for it to be different. It was definitely a ball control game, but it was in favor of North Central. These guys held the ball for 40 minutes on the afternoon. Ethan Greenfield, 143 yards on 20 carries. We don't even talk about Joe Sacco. He's a little further down the depth chart, but he was actually the uh, second leading rusher on Saturday with 11 carries for 66. And then Terrence Hill. Uh, two touchdowns, nine carries for 48 yards. I know we've talked a little bit about Terrence Hill because he had a great uh, game in the second round. Uh, I think like we need to talk about him more even. Yeah, he is a great change of pace back for North Central. He's a guy that you could talk about maybe as being one of the top backs in, in Division Three if he weren't splitting time or, or playing behind Ethan Greenfield. He's that good. That's, you know, and that's sort of, the depth of quality that you get on two deeps of teams that are in that national champion contender area. They have multiple guys that they can throw at you when their top guy needs a, needs a rest after Ethan Greenfield carries five or six times in a row, you bring Terrence Hill in handle ball off and 15 yards later, he's in the end zone and it's 14 to zero for North central. And that's, you know, they just have dude after dude after dude that they can throw at you. And meanwhile, as I was compiling votes for the all-region teams, which will be announced on Wednesday this year, uh, they'll be announced this Wednesday, um, looking at uh, D'Angelo Hardy, for example, and remembering that he is only titularly a sophomore is a little bit, uh, (laughs) right? Obviously, everybody knows about Andrew Kaminsky. Um, You know, it's a guy who's, I would assume, going to be a very high All-American guy for us. D'Angelo Hardy was a you know, a guy who was a secondary guy for them uh, in 2019 and is kind of, you know, in a secondary role again this year. But uh, again, just a sophomore. That's crazy to think about. 
It is. And North Central has a lot of those guys. Ethan Greenfield, he's not a senior. Um, you know, Luke Lennon, just a sophomore, uh, playing his first year. So a COVID freshman. Yeah. Indeed. You know, North Central, they've they certainly do have senior leadership on that team, but they aren't necessarily a team that after this year is gonna be wiped out by graduation. There there is a lot of quality throughout their classes there. And uh, you know, North Central probably going to be in this national championship mix for a while. That is definitely what uh, Coach uh, Jeff Thorne talked about uh, after that game at Wheaton in the uh, Little Brass Bell game back early on in the season, that they want to build a program that is going to be at this level year after year after year after year. And they're back in the national semifinals here for a second year in a row. And you can only take those one year at a time. Other side of the bracket, we have UW-Whitewater advancing past Central 51-21, and uh, we mentioned uh, Mary Harden-Baylor going uh, all over Linfield there as well. We, talk about the, we talked about the Whitewater-Central game a little bit uh, in terms of how ball control in the second half changed things around in that game. Changed things around to the tune of the, uh, that Central had the ball for just 8 minutes and 54 seconds in the second half. Um, you know, Blaine Hawkins in the first half had thrown for... 192 yards and he finished with just 286 on the day and a couple of those uh, some of those were in super garbage time where Central took a couple of timeouts at the end of the game just to you know get a couple more plays in on offense after the game was you know it was a 30 point game with about 30 seconds left it uh, it was really about keeping the ball out of their hands Um, we talked about how well Pete did I also really liked what Max Myler did on Saturday, Greg, you know, he's a guy, you know, the quarterback who's, you know, it's not all that long ago that uh, he took over this starting position, you know, at the end of the regular season or going into the playoffs in 2019, the last time Whitewater had a season. Uh, he was 17 to 22 passing on Saturday. He threw for two touchdowns. He ran for a touchdown diving into the end zone. He caught a touchdown from Ryan Wisniewski on the Philly special. It works every time. I talked to him about that. I was just happy to see that Philly Special hasn't been overplayed yet. People are still <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah that, was, that was a fun one. Um, we had that dialed up this week, and time came for it, and we uh, executed. Between Wisniewski and, for example, Derek Kumaro, who was only even targeted three times on Saturday, Tyrell Holty came out and was a, uh, a big pass catcher for them with uh, two touchdown catches. Uh, you know, a day when they only completed 17 passes because they didn't uh, need to complete too many more. It is, uh, you know, Whitewater continues to do the stuff on defense and offense is looking really good right now. And that makes the Warhawks a really scary combination. It really does. And, you know, the, you know, Warhawks, they're going to pound the rock. It's their ethos. It's what they do. And they did with Alex Pete. But, you know, like North Central, they have so many guys that they can do other things with on offense, particularly Max Myler having a great season. And then bevy of really strong receivers, uh, Wisniewski, Tyler Holty, uh, you know, Derek Humero, all of these guys, a lot of options, a lot of top notch options for Wisconsin Whitewater. And, you know, they're going to, they're going to be pressed next week by a crusader defense. That's playing pretty well. I mean, let's talk about that. And let's also talk about the crusader offense, right? So as much as, we have watched Mary Harden Baylor over the course of you know the past twenty or so seasons build itself into a program that you can pretty much rely on playing into December every year. 
I don't think we ever saw what uh, we saw them do on Saturday offensively. This was, in fact, something that we've never seen from UMHB before. Uh, Linfield opened the game with uh, with an opening drive field goal, and then Mary Harden Baylor they answered with a touchdown. Their first touchdown of this game came on a double pass thrown by KJ Miller, and that sort of signaled that this was not going to be the same old UMHB offensive grinder that we tend to get. Uh, in later rounds of the playoffs with this team. They threw it early. They threw it often. I talked earlier, Kyle King, six touchdown passes. The K.J. Miller touchdown pass, that's seven. Passing touchdowns to zero. Rushing touchdowns for UMHB. When do we see that in the playoffs from them? Never is the answer. You know, I think the important sequence here in the first half is Linfield, and this has been a common theme of, of teams that have dropped to the Purple Powers, this year is uh, Linfield getting deep into Mary Harden Baylor territory and not being able to convert into touchdowns. Their opening drive, they get inside the 10, they kick a field goal on the third drive of the game. They get to the 14, they miss a field goal. UMHB scores on the next drive on their third drive. Linfield is driving down into UMHB territory. Their wide receiver fumbles running after the catch. UMHB scores again, out of their first four possessions, Linfield had three promising scoring opportunities and they were down 21 to three. And that's, that's not what you can do against uh, the elite teams in the division and against Mary Harden Baylor in their defense, certainly really tough to get plus 18 and a half back against that team. Um, so, you know, when you get into the red zone and have those chances, you really have to pay off with, uh, with touchdowns there. All that aside, Greg, uh, Wyatt Smith had really great numbers on Saturday. And actually, to be honest with you, I'm going to backtrack half a second because you know mentioning Wyatt Smith reminds me that we didn't even talk about Blaine Hawkins, who was 27 of 44 passing for two touchdowns with two touchdowns, including one that broke the NCAA record for most touchdown passes in a season. That is also a Division Three record. That was held by Brett Elliott of Linfield when Linfield made that national championship run back in 2004. The uh, you know the president of the NCAA, Mark Emmert, was actually there to see and witness that on Saturday. And then my understanding is like left after about an hour of the game, but he came to a national semi a national quarterfinal game anyway in Whitewater, Wisconsin. So I guess kudos there. But back to the uh, back to the game at hand here. Um, you have now as Mary Harden Baylor put a whole completely different thing on film for Whitewater to look at. And maybe this is where we spin ahead to start looking at these national semifinals, right? You talked about the defense, uh, that defense against the Whitewater offense, and then that offense in a completely different manner against the Whitewater defense. One thing I can say is that, you know, Whitewater is certainly game planned for maybe the best quarterback in Division Three this past week. Kevin Bullis talked a little bit about game planning for Blaine Hawkins. You know, you know, Daniel, I'm an old D-line guy, so I could spend the next 40 minutes talking about that, but I'll, I'll try to put it in a, you know, my elevator. The key thing, one, you're playing against an amazing quarterback, and you're actually playing against an amazing quarterback that has, to me, in my 30 years of coaching, has the best, his ability to throw impromptu, and when I mean impromptu, is when you force him off his spot, 
and you know, you know, stu- studies will tell you, hey, you force a quarterback off his spot, his his percentage of completion is going to significantly diminish. With him, crime, I think it actually goes up almost, and and he's great at throwing in the pocket as well. So they did get to Hawkins. They sacked him six times, uh, which is obviously a uh, you know something they knew that they needed to do. It's obviously something that would help them in a semifinal game on Saturday. Yeah, they're going to have to get pressure on Kyle King. Kyle King is also a guy who can run around a little bit. Um, yeah, pressure on Kyle King is going to be important. Will be interesting to see if UMHB goes and shifts back to uh, maybe more of a 50-50 run or maybe more of a 60-40 run split um, to try and keep Wisconsin Whitewater's offense off of the field because you know they're very explosive as well. Um, I do think though we saw this week uh, sort of the the reemergence of Brandon Jordan as a player that makes a huge difference against top level teams. Um, he had three touchdowns this, this week. I believe he had three touchdowns in that uh, regular season game against Harden Simmons, where we really learned about Brandon Jordan. He's an absolute difference maker. And at this level of the season, he's not really guardable. And, you know, that's going to be that, that statement that I just made is going to be tested this week for sure. Whitewater has a great secondary um, but he's really the ultimate safety valve for this offense. And he's the kind of singularity that a team can ride to a championship. He reminds me very much of like a Derek or a, a Jake Kumaro uh, kind of player uh, with his size and skill and speed. The Whitewater secondary, the starting cornerbacks run five, nine and six, one. And actually the starting safeties run five, nine and six, one. Uh, Kyle Koblinger, he's the guy who got my game ball several weeks ago for the game uh, the week that they played UW-River Falls. He dropped two sure interceptions that were right in his hands. Um, they may not be able to do that. We, If you want to know more about Brandon Jordan, you should go back and look at the feature that we wrote on him back in September, October or so, and I will have a link for that in the show notes. Hey, if you're listening and you don't know how to find the show notes, your podcast app probably has a list of the show notes, but also you can go and find them on the page where we actually post the podcast. Uh, and you find a link to that, uh, from d3football.com. Just one other note from Saturday in Whitewater, as it, uh, looks ahead to next week's game, Kyle Gannon, who's a starting tackle for the Warhawks, uh, got hurt early in the game. Uh, he left the stadium on crutches at the end of the game on Saturday. So something else to keep in mind for the Warhawks. Other side of the bracket, I mean, we've talked a whole lot about where this game is played. Let's talk a little bit about the game itself between North Central and Mountain Union. And the one thing I wrote down from when we were talking with Frank Rossi earlier is that Luke Lanin will definitely roll out and run. Uh, And of course, as we know, as we just talked a few minutes ago, I mean, North Central has other guys who are actually dedicated to running the ball on a regular basis who do that super well. Absolutely. I, I think this is going to be sort of a strength on strength, and this is going to be a really big test for Luke Lannon. Mountain Union has been very adept at stopping the run this postseason. Um, Ryan Stevens had some success, did throw some turnovers in the, Hop- uh, the Hopkins-Mountain Union game, um, but Hopkins didn't really establish much of a run there. Muhlenberg didn't establish much of a run either in their game, used it mostly as you know uh, every now and then change of pace just to keep them honest Um, not a lot of yards gained on those plays keep the clock running kind of thing Um, north central you know they've got they've got some different players though uh 
in their backfield. Ethan Greenfield is uncommon. Uh, Terrence Hill is, like we said, he's a great change of pace, and we would probably talk a whole lot more about Terrence Hill if he played on a different team or if Ethan Greenfield were unavailable for some reason. We would know a whole lot more about Terrence Hill. Obviously, we know North Central's offensive line is very good. That is going to be a very, very fun matchup, that offensive line against Mount Union's defensive line. We're playing very well. But if you're Mount Union, I mean, I think you I think you super load up to stop the run or limit the run and get Lennon into third and longs and say, there you go. Let's, you know, you beat us with your arm. We don't think you're Brock Rutter. And that's going to be the game plan for those guys, I think. Certainly from the analyst point of view, right, for a, a couple of writers and broadcasters, that's the the, uh, the route that makes the most sense, right? You, uh, I, I think you are correct as far as I can tell. Luke Lannon is actually not Brock Rutter. I have not seen the two of them in the same place at the same time, but that is definitely my understanding. And, yeah, Greenfield is not only a, you know, uh, a guy who is amazing for North Central, he's a guy who would be, I think, a Region 5 Offensive Player of the Year if there were not also – a guy named Blaine Hawkins in region five as well. But uh, yeah, that is certainly a, certainly two things to keep in mind. Almost as important as all of those things, Greg too, is the fact that, you know, North central has come to Mountain union and won before. And very recently, I mean, you know, when committee members were talking about the fact that 2019 was two years ago and how many of these players are actually the same players as two years ago, actually in the, the case of the top programs, quite a lot. I would suspect that the uh, the number of guys who travel uh, on the 58-man roster for North Central in 2021 includes probably, I would say, 75% maybe uh, traveled in 2019 or something like that. A lot of guys back and that sort of thing. It used to be that coming to play at the machine was probably just in and of itself worth maybe 14 to 21 points in just awe. There is no awe for North Central. They are not going to go in there thinking they're underdogs. They're going to go in there with the biggest effing chip on their shoulders. If if they thought they were getting disrespected because, you know, a handful of people didn't have them number one in September, what do they got to be thinking right now when they've been sent on the road in the national semifinal like this? That is a excellent point. And we know we have heard firsthand from uh, sideline audio captured by one Pat Coleman earlier this season. Coach Thorne knows how to steer into perceived slight, right? And use that as, as motivation for his team. Not, and I'm, I am absolutely not saying that North Central needs any motivation for a semifinal game against Mount Union, but they have some now. They have some extra motivation now, right? Yeah, this is not perceived slight. This is actual, honest to goodness, <laughs> real, true, verifiable slight. Fact check true. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I'm not I'm not sure that the worst thing that happened to Mount Union this week isn't that they got to play at home. You know, we'll we'll see how that plays into it. And post game press conference on next Saturday will be interesting to see if there's any follow up on that pending outcomes. Are you saying it will be interesting to see if there's a post game news conference on Saturday? It will be interesting to see if there will be a post game news conference, and then if. So uh, hopefully those in attendance uh, will ask about how much that 
uh, site selection decision played into sort of the, the themes and attitudes at practice in Naperville this week? We should just move ahead to spot check. All right. We are going to spot check the quick hits, which uh, last week Pat was not super excited to see, but this week I think it's going to be a little bit better for Pat Coleman. This week in quick hits, the panel did pretty well. Uh, Mary Harden Baylor did flip the script on us a little bit. Four panelists picked Linfield to win a close game, so we're not surprised that UMHB won, but Nobody really foresaw the new air crew offense coming or the point explosion that resulted. Whitewater Central also got a little higher scoring than the panel thought, but four of our panel were on the correct side of that pick. For the week, Pat Coleman, clean sweep, four for four in the quarterfinal round. Good job, Pat. Keith and Greg, we each got three out of four. We missed on Linfield. Frank hit three on three out of four semifinals games. He missed on Muhlenberg. That would have been an amazing sweep for him had Muhlenberg come through. And Ryan and Adam, both just two of four, they each missed on Linfield and Central. So on the uh, the left side of the bracket, not so good for Ryan and Adam. Overall, Pat Coleman retakes the overall lead. He's got 25 correct picks out of this year's tournament so far. Out of 28, I'm, right? Out of, uh, yeah, 28. Pat Coleman in the lead of the on the quick hits panel, 25 correct picks. Ryan and Greg, one, one point behind. We have 24 correct picks. Keith and Frank, 23, and Adam at 20. Really back and forth affair at the top of the standings. I don't think this is settled yet because I think we're going to get some splits in the three remaining games in the tournament. So, you know, you got, got a couple of little giants on your heels there, Pat. I don't know if you how confident you are that you can – fend off either Brian tips or Greg Thomas in the next uh, two weeks. One thing I am fully confident of is that you guys will always fight. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to rest on my one game lead with three to play. Now's the time on sprockets where we dance. Now's the time of the podcast where we go to Twitter. Frankly, been on Twitter since, you know, first off uh, about 11 a.m. Central time on Saturday. And then of course about, Eight o'clock that same night or eight thirty when the bombshell hit, whole metric crap ton of tweets since then. And uh, in that mode, we're going to take a question from Colin Wilhight, who is at Colin Wilhite two L's, uh, two L's in the first name, one in the second name. Anyway, asking why can't we get the committee to release a normal bracket? By that I mean one with seeds next to each name, and then see the top four all prior to the playoffs. Then it's obvious who hosts, and there's no debate. These brackets are set up weird: two seed not at the bottom, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I can't argue with the fact that the brackets are set up weird. There's some real reasons why these things aren't done anymore, and why they announce who the host teams are. Not until typically Sunday. In this case, it was Saturday after games have been played. One of the reasons is that they really want to do an actual real check of the games that happened on the previous Saturday. Make sure that everything is in order at the facilities that host teams, uh, that host games, that things are done, that the proper NCA protocol is, you know, is done all the way from pregame warmups through the game itself through the post-game news conference, through the uh, NCAA-mandated drug testing, all of the things that have to go on, uh, a lot of which don't actually affect the things that uh, take place on the field. And, you know, it's then the committee's uh, 
it's the committee's responsibility to make sure that those things happen. And if they don't happen, either you get them corrected right away, or maybe that is a factor in being allowed to host future games. You know, whether the committee actually uh, performs that particular task uh, in any given week or any given season, I guess is up for some debate, uh, up for more debate than I would have thought it usually is. I think usually those things are generally well handled. Once upon a time, there were brackets with seeds. I mean, the NCAA has never actually released one that has had seeds, but for uh, a good decade and earlier, either was, you know, providing seeds to the media or, you know, you could just read the final regional rankings because that was all there was when there were 16 team brackets. There were one, there were four, there was a two and there was a three. And you always knew at the beginning of the year in fact, before the bracket, before the playoffs even started, which region was going to host which one in the national semifinals. So that was all predetermined and, you know, not really uh, subject to debate. But like I said earlier, they even used to see the top four. Even after they stopped acknowledging that they see the bracket, they used to see the top four. There's a debate right now that there doesn't have to be a debate on, really. This could have been solved much earlier. Yeah, and I feel like in the year, I feel like in years past, we've had a pretty good handle, if not an outright confirmation from committee chairs about the top four seeds and in which order they they happened. And usually, I mean, it's like these things are often kind of uh, obvious to to us using the same uh, primary criteria data that's available to the to the national committee. We can kind of figure out who is the top overall seed and the second overall seed and all down through the top four, this news about Mount Union hosting this game is sort of spun us out a little bit because we didn't know that we thought we did and we didn't. And it doesn't sound like it was predetermined. They really just went and did the math newly on Saturday afternoon. Apparently it was my understanding that there would be no math. Yes. And I, you know, I do think that there's value in having announced those seeds especially the top four overall seeds so that we know, uh, like Colin says, which semifinalist, if the top seed advances through their quadrant, will host who. And if you get that out of the way on Selection Sunday, we can all, you know, everybody involved with those teams and those of us who have uh, casual interest or uh, professional, semi-professional interest in it will have our feelings about it before the round one starts, and then we'll be off and running. We will have reached acceptance um, before the tournament gets started, and we're not spending 40 minutes of this podcast talking about why is Mount Union hosting this game in a way that doesn't make sense. We would have worked it out already. Thanks for the question, Colin. Another one from Chad Hammonds at J. Chad Hammonds asking if the rest of the final four could be reseeded. And I think he probably also means rebracketed. Would you keep it as it stands now or would it be changed? One of the things I love about this is that number one in our poll plays number four in our poll and number two in our poll plays number three in our poll. So I don't think I would change the matchups. That's for darn sure. I would not. And this is actually how I have my uh, my most recent top 25 ballot submitted which was at the end of the regular season number one north central number four mount union uh number my number two team is wisconsin whitewater my number three team is mary hart and baylor so that game actually is being played in the spot where i think it ought to be based on my ballot and then you know we've talked about why i think north central should be hosting this game but 
Yeah, the matchups are the matchups are correct according to my ballot and according to our top twenty-five. Another one from Travis McGuire at Travis J McGuire McGuire with a U, asking if you could pick three places with stadiums for the Stag Bowl, where would they be? Great question. Um, I still would go back to Old Faithful, just number one, uh, and I would go back to Salem Stadium in Salem, Virginia. If you're going to name three places to host a Stag Bowl. I think the folks that did it for 25 times and really made the Stag Bowl into the multi-day event and uh, that it is today, I think Salem Stadium is definitely one of them. Greg, what do you think? How about a, another one from you? I'm, I'm really excited to go to uh, Canton in a couple of weeks. I think that's going to be a very exciting place to play a game. I think Hall of Fame Stadium is going to be a great host. Uh, the game is going to be played in an area that has a lot of division three activity around it. There's a high concentration of division three in Ohio and the great lakes region in general. I think the game in Canton is going to be, I mean, it may be cold for sure, but I think it's also going to be accessible to a lot of casual division three football fans that have not been able to go to Salem or go to Shenandoah or any of the other places that host games, Phoenix city, Alabama, if you want to go all the way back that far, 1989, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm excited to see what sort of the, the neutral, uh, the neutral attendance is going to be in Canton uh, next Friday. Greg making a bold prediction. I think maybe they're just for half a moment. Um, I also very excited to see um, what it's going to be like in Canton. People have been talking about bidding with Canton for, a decade or more, so I was glad to see uh, it finally happen. And I, I love the fact uh, you know there's a conjunction with the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And even though that's pro football and this is college football, there's obviously going to be some great synergies and great opportunities for the student athletes that maybe some of which would have been better pre-COVID. I think if we're going to pick a third place for this list, one place the Stag Bowl hasn't been is it hasn't been like north of the Mason-Dixon and west of. Uh, wherever Kings Island, Ohio is, and I probably should have put this on the map at some point to check. And you know, there was two years that the stag was played there in 1983 and in 1984. So like to find a place that makes sense, you know, we're, we've already now put a stag bowl for a couple of years in Canton, Ohio, which is a game that is a place that is big enough that you can put that uh, you know NFL preseason game in there. It's a little bigger than one would normally have for this uh, for this sort of event, and I totally understand that. But uh, you know, let's go a little further west, maybe, and go to Bloomington, Illinois. Not on the campus of Illinois Wesleyan, but maybe on the campus of Illinois State, uh, which is a, a Division One school that plays football at the FCS level uh, in Bloomington, Illinois. You know, we've already kind of broken the seal on cold weather. Frankly, we haven't had, uh, you know, we haven't had amazing weather for most stag bowls uh, since 1993 or so. So I don't think we're in a position where we are trying to chase good weather anymore. Let's take it to Illinois. Uh, if we want to make it something that is uh, more weather protected, uh, you know, University of Northern Iowa plays in a domed stadium in Iowa, uh, and that is a, uh, that's a possibility as well. One could go all the way, this is about the extreme western end of mainland Division Three, and we talk about our islands, We're talking about mainland Division Three. you go to the Fargo Dome in Fargo, North Dakota, a little small maybe for a Division Three national championship that included someone from the upper Midwest, but 
maybe something suitable for a game between I don't know, say Mount Union and Mary Harden Baylor or or something like that. I think there's a there's definitely some opportunities, and I hope that people continue to bid. Frankly, you know, I really dislike that we have. Uh, a situation where we're going to have a stag bowl in like six different stadiums in five years or five different stadiums in six years, something like that. But it should really give hope to people to go out there and bid with your hometown stadium for when this stuff comes back around in uh, it's like 2025 or something like that, I think is the next one that's available. Yeah. And I think that's a good point is that the NCAA doesn't just parachute in on a city and say, we're going to play our, championship game here like organ like community organizations and city organizers do have to actively pursue that uh on their own and put in bids for hosting the game and all of the support for the event that they intend to give it's, it's a whole it's a whole process as you might imagine thanks for the questions you know how to do this you send us tweets we respond sometimes on the show I don't know if you're aware, Greg. I've had a lot of thoughts in this program. I still have more thoughts. Because I'm not done. I'm not done! I am not done! Every thought of yours is a friend of mine. If I were the president of North Central, the vice chair of the Division Three President's Council, I would be on the phone to anybody in Indianapolis who had anything to do with this decision and be raising some pretty significant questions about it. The President's Council has oversight, you know, actual, this is the other definition of oversight, to oversight over the things that the uh, Management Council does. And the Management Council can look into the sort of things that the Championships Committee do. I mean, you could have the Management Council weighing in on football. Frankly, I would love to have the Management Council weighing in on Division Three football because this asinine thing that is also going through the NCAA process now, which is to say that conferences with just six teams could get an automatic bid, is going to be awful for football. We already have no room for at-large teams as it is. We need to go the opposite direction in football. So I, I would love to see maybe some other people with a little bit extra oversight over Division Three football. That was just a thought that hit me today. Nominate. Pat Coleman, czar of Division Three, Division Three football, maybe not all of Division Three. I know, I know Dave McHugh would fight me tooth and nail to be czar of Division Three basketball. So yeah. Ooh, I would have thought about coaching carousel. The the carousel is spinning. It's happening. I know we're most of our coverage on the front page these days is dedicated to Road to Canton stuff, but things are happening in, in the Division Three coaching world. Jim Collins, former Capital head coach during Capital's significant run in the OAC where they were, you know, one of the top challengers to Mount Union nationally, really. Recently hired to uh, replace the now retired Joe Fincham at Wittenberg. Um, the rebuilding job there, if you can even call it that at Wittenberg, is not nearly as steep as it was at Capital when he built that into a top 10 program. And so, Maybe some waves being made in the North Coast. And, you know, we also had uh, Pat Cerrone at UW-Oshkosh announce his retirement. That makes a couple of really uh, high-profile, higher-profile jobs in the WIAC Open at UW-Oshkosh and UW-Platteville with Mike Emmendorfer also 
having retired in this offseason. So going to get a lot of uh, interesting movement in the offseason coaching-wise in Division Three. Yeah, Cerrone retired ahead of a report, uh, I guess a, a day or so ahead of a report, that there was maybe some question about how some fundraising was done and then how uh, some of that money was used. So kind of interesting over there. Um, I will, you know, I was recalling for people this weekend you know, when Cerrone was hired, uh, one of the people that was in the finalists, and I think that means was then brought to campus and then interviewed, was Vince Karras. You know, the, a couple of years before uh, before Larry Karras retired at Mount Union and Vince ended up getting that job, um, you know, he went out and applied uh, applied for that job and was a finalist uh, there as well as my... Is, that is my recollection, and I apologize if I've offended anybody for this nine-year or so old recollection that might be incorrect, but... Uh, what I'm trying to say is that job was not nearly as good back then and drew some big names. I can't only imagine who would uh, be interested in that job right now. Just a note that all region, as I said, we will be announcing on Wednesday. And then also on December 9th, that is this upcoming Thursday, Frank Rossi and I will be hosting the Gilardi Trophy finalists reveal show. We will, you know, we'll talk about the the 15 semifinals, and then we will tell you who the final four are, from whom the uh, the award that goes to this top overall student athlete in Division Three football is chosen. So keep an eye out for that. I know Frank has been uh, collecting video from schools. I actually walked on a sideline and collected video of my own darn self on Saturday, which may or may not be used. Everybody was asking me my opinion. I said, I have one ballot. 15,000 fans have another ballot. Greg has a ballot. Keith McMillan has a ballot. 40 other people also have ballots. So I could give you my opinion. It's going to be fairly diluted by the time it gets to the final, but uh, keep an eye out for that. That's always fun. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 297, released on December 6th of 2021. Thank you for listening and keep an eye out for continuing coverage throughout the season and the postseason and the offseason. You can support production of this podcast and the D3Sports.com family of websites in general by visiting patreon.com slash D3Sports. But even if you can't afford to support us in a financial manner, you can help us out in a publicity-type manner by telling a friend, a classmate, a fellow alumnus about the show. You can rate and review us in the various places where people do the rating and reviewing of these things we like to call podcasts. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football on Twitter. Greg is at Wally Wabash. I mentioned Keith McMillan is going to be doing the uh, Stag Bowl with us on the uh, upcoming week from Friday. He's been very active in Twitter on uh, the D3Football world over the past weekend or so. so. You should be looking that guy up. You should still be following him. He is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. You can join the conversation by registering to post with an email address that is legitimate. You do that at d3boards.com, and you can follow d3football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is Power 2 by DJ Mentos. We use more of his tracks also. You can find those at djmentos.com as well as on Spotify. Thanks to Frank Thomas for joining us. Frank Thomas, big hurt. <laughs> The big hurt is what this edit is going to be like. (laughs) This is the biggest hurt. (laughs) It is 941 Central Time. And I have not even started editing yet because we haven't finished recording it. 
Thanks to Frank Rossi for joining us on this edition of the podcast. You can listen to more Frank and James Baker on In the Huddle. Thanks to Greg Thomas, my co-host as well. There's lots of things. I'll, I'll just piece together credits. We'll just we'll do we'll, we'll, it's This is going to be the worst edit ever. And I already have stuff I want to put here in the rollout. Some freaking respect. I mean, they had to have been going along the whole time thinking that they were hosting through the semifinals. I think Mount Union probably felt the exact same way about oh, North I Central. think so also. Yeah. There'll be a time to, uh, to look at all this stuff and to reflect, but now's not the time.